Morning. If you have your Bible this morning, uh, I want to encourage you to open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. If you're just visiting with us, or if you haven't been here for a while, we as a church here are journeying through the book of 1 Corinthians. Lord willing. I mean, I don't know how long that's going to last, to be honest with you. I don't lead this church, but as of right now, we're two for two. That's 100%. So that's pretty good. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. By the way, if you do not have a physical Bible. I bet you your elders, uh, Mark, Mickey, or uh, Glenn, would love to give you a Bible. Um, and I bet you they would even find it in their budget to get you a good Bible. You probably even pick your own translation. Um, but I, I think I'm, I'm an advocate for bringing a physical Bible to church, especially when you're involved in a church that preaches the Word of God. Because what we're doing is we're expositing the Word of God, and you can follow along, you can underline words, you can circle, highlight, whatever it is that that sticks out to you, and go home with that, and and maybe do a deeper study of of a certain word, or a certain verse, or something, whatever it is that God kind of brings to your attention. And so I love that. Again, if you don't have a Bible, let us know at the end, um, and we will make sure that you leave with a Bible. So I'm going to do what I did last time. I'm going to... The chapter of, of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is not very long, so I'm going to read the whole chapter. And don't panic, it's only 16 verses. If you don't have your Bible with you, I th- hope you can see that good enough. But I'm going to read the whole chapter, and then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive in. Sound good? Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, the Apostle Paul says this, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you that your word is alive and active. It is speaking to us today. It is life and energy. God, this is your word. This is not information about you, God. This is you speaking to us this morning. So, Father, I pray as we call on the Holy Spirit, would you have him speak through?
through the words of these pages and, and, and open our hearts to receive the truth that comes from your word. God, we need you, and we want to be desperate for you. And so, God, we ask that you do something above and beyond even what we're asking, God. We love you. We trust you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. So Paul, who writes this letter, it wasn't called 1 Corinthians when he wrote it, but Paul writes this letter to this church in Corinth. Ancient Greece at the time, you can actually go to where the ruins of Corinth still are today, probably around 50 to 60 miles outside of Athens. You can still go there and see it. I, I want to go there someday. But Paul writes this letter, and basically what he's doing is he is addressing all of the problems in the church in Corinth. Corinth was not an easy place for ministry, to say the least. And if you remember in chapter 1, verse 10, Paul says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So basically, Paul's saying, look, there is division in the church. It's evident and it's obvious. You are not agreeing on anything. If you remember, they say, Paul says, look, some of you follow this guy and some of you follow that guy and some of you follow Peter. Like, you're not agreeing on the same doctrine. You're all believing different things and you're not agreeing. There's division in the church, Paul says. And this reminded me, because this is still the case today. We're so picky about how our service at church is ran, uh, what, what things look like, what the chairs look like, how much money we should spend on this or that. Like, this is still an issue today. Just the other day, I invited, uh, I was at Home Depot and I invited this woman to our church. Uh, I was just engaging in conversation with her and I said, hey, you should, you go to church around here. Do you live around here? And she said, yeah, I don't live too far from here. And the church was literally right down the street from Home Depot. And so I said, oh, well, would you be interested in coming to our church? And she said, well, what kind of church is it? And I said, well, it's a Christian church. She said, well, what denomination is it? Like, how many questions does a person need to ask? I, I, want, I didn't say this at the time, especially since I was studying through Corinthians. I wanted to say, I wish I would have, but I wasn't that bold. I just want to say, I go to a church that preaches Christ and him crucified. Like, how picky are we? What denomination is it? What kind of church is it? People are so picky today. And division still occurs in our churches today. And so Paul is telling the church at Corinth, who's reading this letter, hey, you're missing the mark. Here's where you're struggling, and here are areas that you need to fix. Paul is promoting unity. He said there is a lack of uniformity in the church in Corinth. So Paul is promoting unity, hoping to redirect the way they think, try to get them on the same page with the ways of God and Christianity at that time and not the ways of the world, and he does it by pointing them back to the cross. So I think it's important for us to have at least a, 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 a brief or, or uh, some kind of small understanding of the culture in Corinth at the time. This was not an easy place for ministry. Corinth was one of the largest uh, cosmopolitan cities in ancient Greece at the time. It was a huge port city. So a lot of people were filtering in and out of the city of Corinth. Lots of traffic going in and out of the city. It was the center of all travel and trade. And so why is that important? It attracted all kinds of different people from all kinds of different backgrounds, from all kinds of different ethnicities. It was literally like a melting pot. And it was filled with all kinds of idolatry and immorality, specifically sexual immorality. And that's important because Paul actually uses a whole chapter to address that issue alone in chapter 5. So, in, in my studying this week, I came across this quote that I thought was interesting. This guy says, the trip to Corinth, back in their day, is not for every man. It had a reputation for trouble. 
and it was even the namesake of a verb, to be Corinthianized, or Corinthian, Corinthianized, excuse me, which meant to become thoroughly immoral and materialistic. It's getting sucked into the lifestyle of Corinth, which is exactly how it is today. We can, be, we can easily get sucked into the world around us, to the culture around us. And so Paul addresses all of these issues. All of these issues in Corinth, that's basically what most of this book is about. But he also spends time pointing them back to what matters most, the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's the same for us. We get caught up in the world around us, whether that's politics. That's, that's, that's a real thing. We get caught up in politics. Sex, drinking, drugs, the things that make us feel good. We get caught up in those things. Self-pleasure. How can I better myself? How can I look better? How much money can I spend on the right outfit to make myself more attractive? Really, what it is, is it's self-exaltation. We make it about ourselves. And this is what the Corinthians were doing. There were many, many different gods and goddesses, literally temples built for the worshiping of other gods and goddesses in Corinth at the time. In fact, there stood really high above the city was the temple of Aphrodite, which was the goddess of love. And so... Literally around a thousand different prostitutes would come down into the city at night and practice their trade. Sexual immorality was rampant in Corinth. And the problem is it was making its way into the church. And Paul says there are some things that we need to fix. And so he writes this letter addressing, Paul does not hold back in this letter. He's addressing all of the issues. Men with women. Men with men. Women with women, sexual immorality, a huge, huge deal to where there was horrible division within the church. This church was about themselves and not about Christ. Jesus became less desirable for the church in Corinth. And so Paul's reminding them about the original message that he came to preach years before. If you remember back in chapter 1, verse 17 and 18, he says, For Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ uh, lose its power or be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. That's foolishness. But to us who are being saved is the power of God. So Paul says, look, don't you remember when I came, I came preaching the power of Christ and him crucified. That's where the power and wisdom of God is found, at the cross. And the problem is, in the Corinthian church, they had been adding the things of the world, the things of their culture, into the church, and it was getting in the the mix of their spiritual lives to where they were no longer living spiritually, but they were living more worldly. And so when Paul actually addresses them, if you look in chapter 3, if you were maybe to turn a page in your Bible, he says, I'm not addressing you as spiritual people. Paul was ticked off with these Christians in Corinth. He says, I'm addressing you guys not as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. He said, look, guys, there's division, jealousy, strife, anger, conflict, disagreements. There's division. And Paul is saying, look, it's evident that you are living your Christian lives in the flesh, not being led by the Spirit of God. You are doing it by your own strength in your flesh. Paul's not holding back. And the problem with the Corinthian church in this day is they had one foot in the culture and in the world and one foot in God's church. And it is no different today. Just so you know, there can be people even involved in the local church today, even in this church, who have one foot in the world and the culture around us and one foot in God's church. 
God is saying, or Paul is saying, and, and really God, because it's his word, is saying, this is not good enough. There's a better way. There's a better way. And so as we dive in to chapter 2, I want to ask you this question. The same question I've been asking myself this week. Are we living a natural life as a natural person in this world, in this culture, or are we living a spiritual life as spiritual people? Are you a natural person or are you a spiritual person? So 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5, I'm going to read it again. Paul says this, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. There's so much in this chapter, I wish we we could dive into all of it. There's uh, so much, but we just don't have time. But Paul starts out saying in chapter 2, When I first came to you, I didn't come preaching to you with the philosophy of this age. I wasn't trying to persuade you with fancy words of wisdom. Paul wasn't trying to impress them when he came. That's what he's saying. In fact, Paul says, when I came, I came in fear. I trembled at the thought of even being there. Paul was afraid when he was in Corinth. If you remember, Paul wanted to actually leave Corinth. If you look in Acts 18, it says this, verse 9, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. In other words, there are people in Corinth at that time that God was going to save through the preaching of Paul's message, through the preaching of Paul, which is crazy because what Paul is saying, what God is saying, is that before the foundation of the world, God had plans to reach people and save people in Corinth. And so Paul stayed. Paul was obedient. He didn't want to stay. He was scared. He was trembling. But he stayed. He was obedient. And we're often fearful too, aren't we? Sharing the gospel. A couple of weeks ago, I think it was, I I mentioned that to encourage us all actually to pray this prayer, God, give me one person to share your love with. An easy, simple prayer. An easy to help Engage the Spirit of God living in us to push us to reach out and share the gospel with someone else. And literally, I prayed that prayer walking into Home Depot that time. I'm, I'm, I had that conversation with the woman. But a few days before I went to Home Depot, I prayed that prayer as I walked into Home Depot. And it was interesting. I prayed that prayer, but I did not want to talk to anybody. It was as if I was being legalistic, religious. Praying that prayer because I, if anybody's got to do it, I better do it. I encouraged us to do it, but I prayed it. And immediately it was like, man, I don't want to share any. I'm just not in the mood. We're fearful for all kinds of different reasons. Rejection mostly. Opposition. People might start asking us questions we can't answer in that context, in that time. So we run from it. And we do this often. And Paul wanted to leave Corinth, but he was obedient. God said, no, there's people there, Paul, that I'm going to save through your ministry. You need to stay. And so Paul was obedient. And we've got to be obedient too. We've got to share this good news. We've got to preach Christ and him crucified. Because if you look at the cross, what the cross resembles is the power and the wisdom of our God. That's what Paul goes on to say. So Paul's obedient. Paul stayed and a church was established there. They're not the healthiest church. They have some issues. 
But Paul's addressing those issues. He's helping them out. So don't worry about whether or not you have the right words. Just preach Christ and Him crucified. Because as you see in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, people are going to oppose that message. People are going to think it's foolishness. But be obedient. So Paul says, look, when I came to you, I didn't come proclaiming to you a message with eloquent words of wisdom. He says in verse 4, I came literally only in demonstration of the power and spirit of our God. So I decided to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's it. Paul didn't want anybody to bank their lives on his own wisdom and his knowledge. And if you know anything about Paul, Paul was as smart as any of them. Paul was a wise, intelligent, intellectual person. Paul was taught by the, act, the very best teachers. Paul was headed for a, a he had a, a path of leadership. He had a, a, a good future ahead of him. He was destined for greatness as a Pharisee. But Paul is saying, look, I gave all of that up. I didn't come to you proclaiming all of the things that I had learned in my youth. I counted it all as nothing. We often make such a huge deal about education and credentials and success, don't we? We look at people. We want to be like those people. We want to hang out with those people. We want to spend time with those people because they have degrees, because they've been some places, because they have credentials and success and a lot of money, and so we want to get to know those people. If you want a good job, if you want a good career, if you want a good life, you need to go to college, the world tells us. You need to get a degree. Who you are is determined by your success and by what you've done. That's what our culture tells us. How many degrees you have? This is the way we think in our society. But let's take a second and remember the disciples, the 12 men who were with Jesus. They had no former training. Yeah, they, were, they spent three years with Jesus. They, they sat under his teaching, but we have Jesus' teachings too in the word of God. Read through the Gospels. Actually, from Genesis to Revelation, we have God's word speaking to us today, teaching us how to be followers of Jesus. We have the same ability that they had to hear his word. What made the disciples so great was not themselves, wasn't their own strength, their own might, their own will, their own power. It was the spirit of God. The spirit of God gave the disciples the courage that they needed. The spirit of God gave the disciples the boldness that they needed. And they needed boldness back then because many, many people, in fact, most people rejected Christianity. But the Spirit of God gave them boldness. The Spirit of God gave them the, the charisma that they had. And it gave them the confidence that they had in the gospel. It all came from God through His Spirit. So it wasn't that the disciples were gifted human beings. You can look in the gospels and you'll know that they weren't gifted human beings. They were good at their trades, but overall they were less than average. It was God's Spirit living in them. Remember when Jesus was on the cross? The only disciple that we have on record at being at the foot of the cross was the Apostle John. Where were the others? Where were the other disciples? The disciples were doubters and liars and hypocrites. They lacked courage and boldness and faith. Because in their flesh, the disciples weren't reliable. In fact, if you look in Acts 4, what does it say about the disciples? They were ordinary and uneducated men. It was the Spirit of God that made 
them who they were in Christ. And it's the same thing for you and me today. It is the Spirit of God that makes us who we are in Christ. Nothing more, nothing less. God's Spirit alone. So Paul says, when I came to you, I didn't come trying to convince you with my fancy degrees or my SAT words. When I came to you, I was scared. I was fearful. I was trembling. And all of my training and the years of learning under the best teacher, I never even utilized it. I counted it all as nothing. Rubbish. Paul says, when I came to you, I came preaching Christ and Him crucified. That is it. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, uh, verses 3 and 4. And when I was with you in weakness, my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. We often get this picture of Paul, at least I used to, of being some stout, like, superhero giant of the faith. Most of the New Testament is written by Paul. He was a church planner, a preacher, an evangelist. He was an incredible dude, incredible human being. Had, had lots of knowledge, intelligence, knew the scriptures probably as good as any of them, if not better. But look at what 2 Corinthians chapter 10 says about Paul. His bodily presence is weak, and his speech is of no account. That's what they said about Paul. And if you look in Acts, and I forget what chapter it is, but there's a point in Acts where Paul is preaching in a house with a lot of people there. And there's this guy, you might remember this name, his name is Eutychus. Eutychus falls asleep when Paul was preaching. He, fall, he fell out of the window. He died. Eutychus fell asleep when Paul was preaching. And, he, and it killed him. He fell out of a window and he died. He literally was dead. That's what the Bible tells us. And so Paul being, you know, filled up with the Spirit, goes down to, I guess, the next level. Must have been a two-story house. <laughs> and he revives him. He brought him back to life. And uh, guess what Paul did after that? He kept preaching. I will not be offended if you fall asleep when I preach. I will totally be offended if you die from it, though. <laughs> so Paul's, they're saying, man, Paul was weak. He was weak. His bodily presence was weak. And his speech was of no account. So Paul is saying, look, I don't want to preach in a way that you're going to rely on my wisdom and my power. That would be foolishness. Paul says, I'm a weak person, and my words don't matter. When I came, it was in demonstration. This is important. Paul says, he dismisses all of his knowledge, his, his history of learning, as a Pharisee, the way he grew up, having the Scriptures memorized, he dismisses it all. And he says, look, when I came to you, I came literally in demonstration of the power of the Spirit of God. Why? So that your faith, their faith, my faith, might not rest on the wisdom of men, on the wisdom and influence of this age, but on the power of our God. That's what mattered most to Paul. Paul is basically saying it is foolishness for you or for me or for anybody to bank our lives on the wisdom and power of other people. It is foolishness. Including your own knowledge and your own wisdom, what you think you know is best on how to live the Christian life. Paul is saying it's not worth it. Don't bank your life on that. The natural person rejects the truth about God. And this is exactly what Paul is talking about. After Paul says, the Spirit of God 
is what reveals the wisdom of God. He says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly. They are foolishness to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The natural person, the person of this world, the person who is so easily influenced by culture and people, the natural person relies more on the wisdom of this world and of the people in this world. What they perceive to be true about God and His Word. They are not relying on the wisdom of God's Word. They're relying on their own strength and their own power and their own might and their own knowledge and what they've learned and what they've heard and what they've been taught by other people in the culture. And honestly, it's really pride that's keeping us from relying on the wisdom of God. And, that, and what Paul is saying in verse 14 is that we cannot receive truth from God because we're too busy relying on ourselves. We're too busy relying on our flesh. What we see and hear things in the natural sense, not the spiritual, what happens is we're rejecting the truth of God. And every single day that we go without reading the Word of God, every single day that we are not soaking in, saturating ourselves in His Word, we are rejecting His truth and His wisdom. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm on a Bible reading plan, and I'm not 100% faithful to it as I would like to be. I don't read it every single day, although I try to. Don't beat yourself up if you don't read the Bible every day. Start tomorrow. Read one passage of 1 Corinthians 3, gearing up for next Sunday. Like, don't beat yourself up. Don't soar super high to where you can't reach trying to read four or five chapters a day. Start in a place that's simple. Start reading one passage. Even read a verse. We need God's Word. The Bible says that God's Word is alive and active. It pierces through our soul. Who knows a thought, our thoughts better than God? That's what Paul says. We need God's Word. We need to saturate ourselves in the Word of God. And any time or every time we're not reading God's Word, soaking it in, relying on it, abiding in it, we're rejecting His wisdom. And Paul is saying, that is foolishness. Look again at verse 14. Paul says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. Foolishness. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So this isn't the first time that Paul mentions this word folly, which means foolishness. He mentions it back in chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. And in verse 21, chapter 1, verse 21, it says, it pleased God through the folly, the foolishness of what we preach, which is Christ and Him crucified, the cross, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The message of the cross is foolishness to Gentiles. That's what Paul's saying. To all people. If the natural person does not rely on God's wisdom, then the natural person sees the cross as foolishness. Our whole Christianity is based on the cross. The foundation of our faith starts at the cross. The natural person looks at the cross as ridiculous. Utter nonsense. The natural person does not accept the things of God. 
The natural person is easily influenced by the world and culture around them. The natural person is easily influenced by the leaders of our world. The natural person is easily influenced by what people say on social media. The natural person is easily influenced by the things that make them feel good. Even if it's just for a short time, like alcohol, like drugs, like pornography, like things like that, that give self-pleasure. The natural person is easily drawn to those things because they're rejecting God's wisdom. The natural person is easily influenced by circumstances, by our circumstances, by our situation. We allow that to dictate how we live and how we act and how we speak to people. The natural person refuses to let God be first in their life. And the natural person can actually come to church. The natural person can actually be involved in the local church. But nothing changes in their life. They look no different than the world and the culture around them. The natural people will not boast about the kingdom of God. Because the world and people and the wisdom that comes from that has more of an influence on the natural person instead of the Spirit of God. Simply put, just like in Corinth at this time when Paul's writing this letter, the natural person, natural people have one foot in the world and the culture and one foot in God's church. And the truth is, the Spirit searches everything. You might fool the people around you, but you will not and cannot, impossible to fool our God. But the beauty of our God says, look, you have one foot here and one foot there. But my cross says there's grace and there's forgiveness and there's a power that I can give you to redirect your ways and your thinking. So the natural person looks at the cross as foolishness. And this makes sense when you think about it. Because the cross represents truth from God. That is a shot to human pride and human power and human wisdom. Imagine yourself in the first century when Paul's actually writing this letter. In fact, imagining you are reading this letter when Paul sent it out. Like we, today, we wear crosses around our necks. I bet there's a few people who have a cross around their neck right now. You have crosses on your walls in your house. Like, so do I. We love crosses. Crosses are great. We hang crosses all over our house, in our bathrooms, where everyone can see, in the living room. My mother-in-law has like 500 crosses hanging somewhere in her house right now. They didn't do that in the first century. They didn't hang crosses on their walls in their homes. They certainly didn't wear cross. They weren't making cross necklaces. No one would buy them. That'd be like wearing an electric chair around your neck in the first century. Like, it's kind of weird, isn't it? Or putting a picture of a lethal injection table over your dinner table. Like, nobody's coming to your house for dinner anymore after that. Because the cross, in all seriousness, the cross is the most gruesome, torturous, shameful way to kill someone. It was in their day. And it was reserved mostly for barbarians and slaves. And so this is why Paul says in chapter 1, verse 23, that the idea of the cross and Christ crucified is a stumbling block to Jews. I mean, to a Jewish person in the first century, anyone to, who, who was hung on a tree was cursed by God. The idea of a Messiah, the Savior of all humanity, crucified, was a shocking statement. It was blasphemy. That would never happen in Jewish thought. So the Christ, the Savior of the world, to be crucified, to be hung on a tree, that was a stumbling block for most Jews. That would never happen. But it was also folly to Gentiles, Paul says. It was foolishness, utter foolishness, 
to, to the Greeks, to the, the foreigners, to the outsiders, Jewish ways and, and Jewish cu- culture. It was foolishness. That word folly here, folly to the Gentiles, literally means madness. That's madness. A man died on a tree and I'm supposed to put all my faith and my hope in that? That's madness. If the Gentiles heard that a Jewish man died, think about this. If, if a Gentile, a foreigner, a, a Greek philosopher in their day, all these people caught up in the world and the culture around them with all the immorality and the idolatry and worshiping of all these other gods that they had been doing for centuries, and you come to a Jewish, a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, and you say, hey, there's a Jewish man who died on a piece of wood on a nondescript hill in a nondescript part of the world. And his death determines the eternal fate of every other person in the world. They would think that that is the most ridiculous and absurd statement that anyone could make. If Christ is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, it's absurd to Americans today because of our pride and because of our power and our influence, really. The cross is still foolishness today. Think about it like this. Take a nice, successful, well-dressed American man with a nice job and a big house and a nice car, and then take a free-thinking American woman who thrives on her independence from everything, including God. Now take them both outside of the city to a garbage dump where a naked man is hanging on a tree with nails in his hands, blood all over him, and tell that man and that woman, your only hope in life is to believe in this man because he is God. And you're entirely dependent as him, as your judge, and your master, and your Lord, and your king. Take that couple, that man, that woman, out to a garbage dump in McKinney and try to convince them that a man crucified and nailed to a tree and say, your eternity hinges on this man. Doesn't that sound absurd? Doesn't that sound ridiculous? The cross is foolishness to people in our day too. The problem is, most people, especially in the South, especially in Texas, would identify themselves as Christians easily. Oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Oh, absolutely. Are you a Christian? Yeah, sure. What church do you go to? Well, yeah, but I'm a Christian. The problem is today, just like in Corinth, And in Paul's day, in general, we are so quick to give lip service to Jesus, but continuing on to live our lives how we see fit. Paul is saying, this is foolishness. This is not wisdom from God. The natural wisdom of this world sees the cross as folly. And here's the scary truth. Ultimately, the natural person, the, the natural wisdom of this world, the natural wisdom of this age, the rulers of this world, the rulers of this age are what, Paul says? Doomed to pass away. Which is exactly what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age, who are doomed to pass away. The natural world, the, the world, the culture around us is trying to convince you and me Uh, that we can have it all in this life, that we can build up status and wealth and wisdom and power and success and influence and have great meaning and great purpose in this life. You can be a leader of your own business. In fact, you can strive even higher than that. You can be a leader of a country if you set your mind 
on it. The sky's the limit. What do you want to achieve? You can reach it. I just saw this uh, video popped up when I was scrolling through Instagram of Tony Robbins. Are you familiar with Tony Robbins? This incredible motivational speaker. Uh, really a charismatic guy. Uh, seems like a cool guy, but just rooms full of thousands of people come to hear him speak on how they can get rich quick, on how they can build their uh, wealth, on how they can make their business thrive. It's fine to have a, a, a thriving business. That's not a bad thing. But his whole talk is always on how you can become a millionaire and do it quick. As if that's what we should strive for in this life. And the problem is you can scroll through Instagram and Facebook all day long. And something's going to grab your attention that's telling you how you can look better, feel better, gain more wealth, build yourself up in this world, make more money. But what they're not telling you is that it's all doomed to pass away. It's all doomed to pass away. All your money in your house, in your cars, in your savings, in your investments, doomed to pass away. A life of health and wealth, prestige, self-glorification, doomed to pass away. Politics, doomed to pass away, if you can believe it. Leaders of countries, leaders of the free world, doomed to pass away. The world and everything in it, literally, doomed to pass away. That's what Paul is saying. The world, human, natural wisdom, tries to build us up and tell us how we can be better versions of ourselves. Self-exaltation is what our culture promotes. Relying on ourselves instead of God's Spirit. And when we do that, we're rejecting God and His wisdom. So the Corinthians were essentially rejecting the wisdom of God by living for themselves and indulging in the things of their culture. And this is not why Jesus died. This is not what the cross represents. Jesus did not die so you and I could become better versions of ourselves. might be hard to believe, but that's not why Jesus died. The cross represents way more than that. Christianity is not about you, and it's not about me. It's not about improving our manner of living either. Jesus never promised that if we follow him, we'll improve our way of life. We'll, we'll, we'll be safe and hidden from all harm. But Jesus didn't promise that, and it's a good thing that our Savior and King and Lord over all the universe didn't promise us a good and peaceful and perfect life. Isn't it? Jesus says, here's how you can become a better version of yourself. If you want to save your life, you need to lose it. The world and the culture will not look at something like that and say, yeah, that sounds pretty good to me. Jesus says, if you want to save your life, you need to lose it. And when Jesus was alive, he said, look, they persecuted me. So you can bet they're going to persecute you. The Christian life is not a life of ease and comfort. Most of you know that. It's not for the faint of heart, though, either. It's inevitable. Persecution is inevitable. And here's what I want to say. If, if you and I are not being opposed for what we believe, if we're not being argued for what we believe, if we're not being debated about what we believe about Jesus, now this doesn't have to be on a huge stage with thousands of people. It could be in your own home with a, a sibling or a, a, a son or a daughter or a relative or a friend of yours in your workplace, if you're not ever being opposed for what you believe, argued or debated about what you think and believe to be true about Jesus and about God and about the world, if you're not even being asked about your faith, 
then you need to ask yourself this question. Are you living a more natural life or are you living a spiritual life? Jesus says, if you want to follow me, take up your cross and follow me. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, take up your instrument of death and follow me. So to help answer this question, we live in a more natural life or more spiritual life. There's a couple of other things we should look at and ask. Are we following Jesus or are we following this culture? Are we following Jesus or are we following the world? Do we have one foot in and one foot out? Or do we have both feet in? Totally, fully, completely surrendered to the kingdom of God. Is Jesus your master or are you your master? Do we give Jesus lip service at best and call it Christianity? Who's your master? Who are you following? Who am I following? Who's my master, my Lord? Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew, if you spend your life building up treasures on this earth, wealth, status, influence, exalting yourself, trying to be a better version of yourself, you're devoted to the wrong thing. Jesus says you can't serve both God and money. Matthew 6, verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, if you really want to be my disciple, take up your cross, take up your instrument of death, and just know that you're going to have a target on your back. And now I'm not just talking about people opposing you. I'm not just talking about a coworker opposing you and trying to debate you and make you slip and fall. When I say you have a target on your back and I have a target on my back, we're going to be opposed by the devil. We have now said, I want to follow Jesus. I want to surrender my life to Jesus. And now we, are, we have just stepped into enemy territory. The great enemy, the accuser, the devil is after us and wants to attack us and wants to find our weaknesses and, and see that we trip and we fall and we stumble. So Jesus says, you're going to experience opposition. It's not going to be easy. You're going to be persecuted. But if we're obedient, we stay pure and honest and genuine, then we've become a threat to the kingdom of darkness. And that's pretty awesome. Because the kingdom of darkness is what? Doomed to pass away. And so Jesus warns us, you're going to have trouble, but in the end it's all worth it. But in the end, it's all worth it. Look what Paul says in verse 7. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. God decreed, it says. The Bible is not information about God. When it, Paul says God decreed, it's saying that God has spoken God's word, speaking to you and me right now, saying, for those whom I've called, those who believe in my name, those who are my followers, who put their faith in me, are baptized in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. There is a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory, before the foundation of the world, God knew that he would save you, that he would take you out of the world and into his glorious life. That at the end of this world, at the end of your life, you will be glorified with Christ for all of eternity. That's what Paul is saying. So verse 10, this is where I want to end. Paul says this in verse 10. Again, there's so much in this chapter, we just can't cover it all. Paul says, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches, again, every single one of us has come into this room this morning 
with burdens, with anxieties, with fears, with doubts even about the Bible. You look at the world around you, the suffering in it, all of those things. You even play the comparison game. I was doing that recently. Non-believers, having what they have, living in their sin and their way and their culture. And I, I said, well, God, I'm, but I love you. Why don't I have what, what I'm asking for? We play that comparison game all the time. I'm no different. You'd be fooling yourself if you thought that you were different. But here's the good news. The Spirit of our God searches everything. Everything. What you know about God, the Spirit has allowed you to understand and perceive. So what you've come in here, the thoughts that you may have, God knew those thoughts before you even had them. Whatever it is going on in your life, the Spirit searches everything. God knows everything that you need before you ask. And as believers, as followers of Christ, we can bank our lives on the cross of Jesus Christ, who has saved us from our sins, has given us an eternal glory that will never last. And the things of this world that are doomed to pass away, God has said, for your glory I have exalted you high above all things to be glorified with Christ, the Savior of the world. Because to those who believe, the cross is life. It is eternal life. It is forgiveness. If you came in this room this morning needing forgiveness in some area of your life, the Spirit searches everything, and He knows. And so, that's who we have. That's what we bank our life on. The power of our God and the cross of Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank You for Your Word. God, it, it, I believe that what Paul is saying to be 100% true. And Father, I pray that everyone in this room who might have doubts or questions about this book, any book, any word, any verse in the Bible, God, that your spirit search their hearts. God, that you would open their understanding to receive truth from God. God, that you would help us and when we cry out to you, Father, that you would help guide us in the way we think, the way we live, the way we act. Father, that you give us grace where we need it. God, even when we have opportunities to share the beauty and the wonder of the cross of Jesus Christ, God, that we would just preach Christ and him crucified, nothing more, nothing less, and we would be confident in that. And God, help us through the power of your spirit. Give us life. Give us energy through your word. Give us strength when we're weak. Give us hope when we feel hopeless, God. And encourage us, God, as we live in this world that is so against you. Give us the strength and the might and the power to keep pressing on and running this race. We love you, God. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.